I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we're here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case, unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then turn to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the week's symptom. The cases we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but... Because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most of the cases are composites. What are we talking about today, Scott? Well, what I've heard is that we're talking about wheezing and strider today, and you are the expert of the day. And do you have a case to present to me? I do have a case to present I to you. I thought me. you might. Okay. So this is a 65-year-old man who presents the clinic for an initial visit. He comes in because for the last few months, he's been feeling short of breath, and for the last few weeks, he's been wheezing. He says he can always hear his breathing. He's always short of breath, but it's most notable with any type of exertion. Otherwise, he feels well. He's never smoked. He saw a doctor last about three years ago. That doctor retired and took all of his records with him. <laughs> his only medical issue is hypertension, for which he takes lisinopril, and he's been on that for years. His past medical history is only notable for an appendectomy, a cholecystectomy, and a bout of pneumonia um, about 20 years ago, he said sometime in his 40s. He's up to date on healthcare screening and had planned to see a new doctor, but is coming in you know, sooner than he expected because of his breathing. Why don't I leave it there and hear what you have to say about that? Well, it's an interesting story, and it's one of those patients that you really love to examine and see what's going on. You know, obviously, when we hear wheezing, the most common diagnosis that comes to mind is asthma. But a lot of this is a little bit atypical for that. So I'd be pretty thoughtful about it. You know, he's more short of breath and it's pretty constant, unlike the episodic nature of asthma. And it's coming on him fairly late. Doesn't mean asthma is not possible, but I'm a little bit suspicious about other possibilities. So the first thing would, of course, be to examine him and see if he really has wheezing, which is high pitch sounds on expiration. Or is there any chance it's dried or high pitch sounds on inspiration, which would of course completely change the differential. I'd like to know if he's got cardiac findings like crackles or jugular vasodilation or an S series gallop or a significant murmur because heart disease at his age would be very common and heart failure can present with wheezing, shockingly enough. And that's probably as common as more common than asthma at this age. If he is truly having wheezing, um, then I wonder about obstructive disease as well as asthma. Now, I think you said he's never a smoker. Is that correct? Non-smoker. And uh, can I ask what his work was? Yeah, he was a lawyer and I think he did like food law, something like that. Okay, so no clear work exposure. I'd also ask him about hobbies to make sure there's no environmental exposures. But in the absence of anything significant like that, COPD would be very unlikely. Um, you can talk about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but that's rare. And you could, we could ask him about family history of emphysema, but that would be pretty low on, on the list. You know, I suppose the final thing to think about would be he does have one episode of pneumonia. It's not a con very convincing story for ABPA, but it's on the list. And so if I was really convinced that this is wheezing and I found nothing else, I would want to prove asthma and order a set of PFTs with a methylcholine challenge test and get a chest X-ray at the very least as a start. Sounds good. ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, right? Indeed. 
And so for our listeners that haven't run into this, it's a relatively uncommon condition where it's not an aspergillus infection per se, but an allergic response to aspergillus. And because the mucus is very thick, patients often present what's with what is misinterpreted as pneumonia. They get mucoid plugging and they get collapse of the downstream alveoli. And they often look like they have shifting infiltrates on chest X-ray and they often have marked eosinophilia. And it's uncommon, but not something you don't see. Correct. Um, let me go a little bit further. So I listened to the guy. Okay. Um, and he did not have wheezing. Okay. Um, wheezing, I learned, um, is, you know, mostly is musical, mostly expiratory sounds. It's very cool when you listen to really good wheezing, right? It's made by multiple airways with um, obstruction. Um, and since the multiple airways are multiple different sizes, you actually really do hear multiple tones. It's kind of like a harmonica, I guess. This guy did not have that. This guy had a single pitch sound, um, quiet, but which you really only heard on inspiration. Well, that's worrisome because that sounds like a fixed obstruction somewhere. And typically, if you hear it on inspiration, um, now we're talking about strider and I'd worry about something above the thoracic inlet. So fixed obstructions in the airways can cause strider. But typically, strider is worse on inspiration because the upper airways above the thoracic airway, above the thoracic inlet, I'm sorry, narrow when you take a deep breath. And so the sound is louder on inspiration than on expiration. Okay. So I'm, I'm now I'm worried, actually. And I would um, worry about some sort of upper airway obstruction. What might that be? It's going on for a long time. So angioedema seems unlikely. Um, he probably would know if he'd swallowed something incorrectly. He's not a smoker, so a tumor is not likely, but I wonder about something compressing his airway. Um, might want to have ENT and anesthesia look at him. Okay, let's pause there, okay? Um, and I'm going to move on since I'm the expert. Um, <laughs> I'm the expert, damn it. Um, <laughs> to five key points about Wheezing and Strider. Um, and a lot of these are things that I think, as usual, um, you nicely sort of pointed out while you talked about the case. Um, so point one, Wheezing and Strider are symptoms of airflow obstruction caused by the vibrations of the walls of pathologically narrow airways. Um, wheezing, and you mentioned this, high-pitched musical sound produced primarily during expiration by airways of any size, while Strider is really a single high-pitched inspiratory sound that's produced by large airways with severe narrowing. And because it may be caused by severe obstruction of a proximal airway, Strider is often a sign of impending airway obstruction and should be considered an emergency. Now, there's certainly Strider, which like isn't an airway emergency and isn't going to kill somebody immediately. But because there are so many bad diagnoses that cause Strider, it really should raise your pulse when you hear that. How is that for me, like channeling Scott Stern and getting all that's freaked pretty, out about That's something. pretty good. I, I, I was pretty happy. Raising the pulse. We've, I don't think we've ever raised your pulse before. <laughs> okay, so my second key point is about framing your differential. And I think about Wheezing and Strider as like a classic, classic, classic anatomic differential diagnosis, okay? Um, and I think about it going from upper airway um, all the way down to the smallest bronchial. So strider may be caused by obstruction from the pharynx to the proximal airway, while wheezing is really caused by narrowing of proximal airways all the way down to the distal airways. And probably most commonly, you know, certainly most commonly, asthma, COPD, and as you mentioned, edema, right? Right. Um, 
Um, I think it's surprising how often we hear wheezing in people with heart failure exacerbations. And physicians often discount that possibility right. on exam. And right. I think it's pretty common. I don't know the data. Do you know any numbers on that? I would have to look it up. Okay. But I think you are right. Okay. You have a third point for us. My third point. So all strider is wor- is worrisome, right? Acute strider is really worrisome. And you mentioned a couple of these things, although this guy's a little bit different, right? He really sounds like this is more chronic. But when you hear, you know, acute strider, so that may be someone who said, God, I was feeling fine and I don't know, 24 to 48 hours ago to more recent, all of a sudden it became short of breath and you listen to the person, the person has strider. You should think about things like foreign body aspiration, inhalation injury, infection, and that can be not terrible things like maybe pharyngitis or peritonsillar abscess and then really, really scary things like retropharyngeal abscesses or epiglottitis or angioedema, which I think you mentioned in this guy, which is sort of interesting since he is on an ACE inhibitor. Totally. You know, if it got your pulse up, I think right now I'm in VTAC. So <laughs> I, oh, I got I to gotta find out what this guy has. I'm getting more nervous. I could picture you running around the clinic just screaming for anesthesia. I've never too. screamed, <laughs> but I would be looking for anesthesia. Go ahead. Yeah, fourth point. Okay, fourth key point. So I'm going to go from strider to wheezing. Okay. okay. Um, and a couple of these things are really these like completely overwrought statements, but I'm going with it anyway. Okay, so most wheezing is asthma. However, okay, one, patients generally call all noisy breathing wheezing. And so you got to make sure that wheezing is actually wheezing and not something else, okay? And certainly strider is the big thing, but I've heard patients who actually are like hearing other you know, breathing things, you know, people who are actually hearing their own rails who are saying I'm wheezing or or most commonly probably ronchi that they have stuff in their upper airway, which is making noise. So are you saying we should be doctors and actually listen to the patient rather than just take the patient's word for it? Is that the implication of this comment? That is. I guess that's not very patient-centric, but it is true. <laughs> um, uh, second, and this is what you've you know, I'm sure anybody who's listening to this has heard a million times before. Um, all that wheezes is not asthma, right? Your differential of wheezing should actually be quite um, extensive. And then another point is that the absence of wheezing does not exclude asthma, right? There are definitely asthmatics, and I think this is more and more true as people who get older and older, who their asthma does not present as wheezing, but maybe presents as dyspnea or other symptoms. I sometimes find that you can bring out the wheezing by asking people to forcibly exhale. Yes. Um, that turns out to be fairly... So I totally do that, okay? Um, I sort of listen to people, and then I usually go anterior, and I say, okay, take a deep breath in and blow out hard and fast, right? Um it turns out to not be terribly specific, though, because a lot of people actually just make noise when they do that for you. And so Bummer. Okay. <laughs> so I find it useful when I talk about um, diagnosing asthma to consider the definition of asthma. Um, and I take this definition from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Expert Panel Report. So this is it, and I'm going to highlight a couple of parts of it. So the, the, their definition is, quote, a chronic inflammatory disease of the airway in which many cells and cellular elements play a role. In susceptible individuals, this inflammation causes, and this is the really key point here, quote, recurrent episodes of wheezing, okay, so it's on and off, right, recurrent, and it's recurrent episodes of wheezing, breathlessness, chest tightness, and cough, 
particularly at night and or in the early morning. Okay, so you get all the different ways that asthma can present, right? It doesn't have to be wheezing. It could be intermittent breathlessness, intermittent chest tightness, intermittent cough. And these episodes are usually associated with widespread but variable airflow limitation that's often reversible either spontaneously or with treatment. So people may say, I took my albuterol, it got better, or, you know, I just waited and woke up the next morning, I was feeling better. You know, they often talk about nocturnal asthma and patients being worse at night. Do you think that has to do with GERD triggering a vagal reflex? Have you seen any data on that? Um, so there are all different reasons that that can happen, okay? Um, so GERD is a possibility. Uh, postnasal drip from sinusitis is a possibility. And then there's the issue of just the tone of the airways decreasing during the night. And I think that's an important thing, which we'll probably get to when we treat asthma, right? Of figuring out like, what is it? Is there something exogenous that's that's exacerbating right, exactly, this person's right. disease? Okay, and I think you have one more point for us. I've got a fifth and final key point. All right. And that's measuring peak flows or FEV1 is really critical in assessing a patient with an asthma exacerbation, okay? So we've gone from talking about strider to talking about wheezing and now really talking about asthma. So if someone comes in and they say, boy, my asthma's flaring up, I'm short of breath, um, you really got to think about measuring peak flow or FEV1. And yeah, of course, you should look at the patient, you should listen to the patient, but you also have to measure peak flow as well. Um, and it's because you often find a patient, you know, who doesn't look too bad and is barely wheezing, but is just not moving a lot of air, right? And so their peak flow is low. And that's someone who you might want to, well, not you might want to take seriously, you should take seriously. Um, patients with peak flows of less than 40% of predicted, those people need to come into the hospital. You know, that's after you've sort of treated them and buffed them up as as much as they can. But then also, you know, even if their peak flow is okay, you got to think, is this person at risk? Because the last thing you want to do is send someone, you know, out of the clinic, out of an urgent care, out of an emergency room with asthma and have that person do terribly because we're so good at treating asthma if we take it seriously. And so I'm just going to throw out a whole bunch of things to say, like, these are things to think about above and beyond your history, your physical, your peak flow. So previous severe exacerbations, right? If this is someone who says, you know, the last four times I was hospitalized, three of those times I was intubated, right? You should be damn scared about sending that person home. Multiple recent emergency room visits or hospitalizations. So if it seems this person is, is you know, kind of getting worse and worse. If they're using a ton of their inhaler recently, if they say, you know, I've gone through two canisters of albuterol in the last month, take that person seriously. They've probably got a lot of inflammation which needs to be treated. Current use or recent discontinuation of systemic steroids, right? So maybe this person is, is at a place um, where they're using steroids and they're flaring on top of the steroids or they just came off steroids and they're flaring again. Um, Difficulty perceiving airway obstruction. You know, I've had a bunch of patients in my career who just, they can't figure out how bad their asthma is. Um, and they've gone from saying, I feel fine, to all of a sudden being admitted. You know, that's someone to worry about because they may not know if they're getting worse. Right. It uh, seems like that's often in the people of severe asthma all the time. They underestimate how sick they are. I think that's true. And it's probably, I think, because they've sort of limited what they do, right? Right. Um, and so they're not that active. And so their asthma may be getting worse and worse and they haven't done anything to tip it off. And then the other three things I was going to point out are just probably, you know, correlate with bad asthma outcomes, 
but it's just something to think about. So low socioeconomic status, um, inner city residents, those are people who often do poorly with asthma. Illicit drug use, maybe because they're using things which are exacerbating the asthma, or maybe they're just not in touch with how bad their asthma is. And then um, just comorbid conditions, whether they be medical, whether they be psychiatric, things that are going to make the diagnosis difficult. And the low socioeconomic status is probably a combination of things, right? Difficulty getting to healthcare, environments that have more allergens in it, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, there's you know there's interesting data about just like asthma prevalence on and off, um, like in people who live on a large street that buses go down versus off a large street. And so where they live correlates with their income and it correlates with their exposures. And we all know that, you know, there tends to be in the United States more pollution in poor neighborhoods because that's where, you know, your trash processing is and stuff like that. You know, the other interesting thing is there's statistics that show that uh, regular use of inhaled corticosteroids actually decreases mortality, as you know. And so you can imagine if you're socioeconomically stressed and don't have enough money, that might be another variable that they're not able to fill their inhaled corticosteroids as often. Right, right. And those the inhaled corticosteroids, although over the long term more effective than the bronchodilator, you don't feel like it's helping when you right, use exactly. it. Right, exactly. Sort of like the difference between an SSRI and a benzodiazepine. Right. Very good. I like that analogy. Yeah, thank you. Very thank nice. You. Okay. Should we go back to our case? Let's go back to our I'm case. really curious what you did. So you're in the clinic with this guy with Strider. It sounds like it's chronic. Yeah. So it's not your normal terrifying thing, but it's worrisome. Yeah. So do you start with imaging or did you call someone to look at him? Well, so I kind of concealed one part of the history, oh. which you picked up on. But hearing that, would you like to ask any other questions about his appendectomy, his cholecystitis, or his past episode of pneumonia? I'd like to know if he had other episodes of pneumonia. So he didn't have other episodes of pneumonia, but his pneumonia turned out to be a horrible mycoplasma pneumonia um, for which he spent three weeks intubated in the intensive care unit. Oh. And was eventually extubated, spent another week in the hospital, and actually spent, you know, he says, I spent months in pulmonary rehab. I'm not sure that was true. But this Uh, was 20 years ago. This was 20 years ago. So it would certainly make you think about tracheal stenosis, being intubated for a long period of time, although it's shocking that it would present 20 years later. Right, right. That's what I was thinking at the time. And I certainly thought, boy, you know, this is someone who needs to be in the hospital. I actually sent him- You thought that? I did think that. I sent him to the emergency room um, via radiology and his chest X-ray was amazing. Perfectly clear lungs, but a trachea that you could see on the X-ray, which was, I guess, about the size of a large straw, okay? Um, Maybe one of those straws that you drink those, you know, bubble bubble teas with. Huh, I've heard of those teas. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure you've never had one. (laughs) Don't Um, like them. (laughs) Anyway, so, um, you know, in further conversations with this guy, he was not a terribly active guy. And so I think what probably happened is this tracheal stenosis was going on for a long time and just, you know, hit some sort of critical place, um, you know, in the months before. Um, But this is not easy to fix or actually what happened? Yeah. So, uh, you know, everybody was struck by this x-ray. 
he, after a lot of hemming and hawing, he was very stable, um, not surprisingly, and you know spent a few days in the hospital where nothing happened and people sort of you know planned what they were going to do. Um, he ended up being discharged and then coming back for numerous bronchoscopic procedures um, to try to dilate his trachea. He did okay, um, but it was it was a difficult. Um, I mean, I can imagine that's not going to work very well. It's cartilaginous and it's right, scarred. Right, right. Wow, that's too bad. Okay, well, that's a really interesting case, but it illustrates the difficulty of accepting people's word for wheezing and how important Strider is. So let's go on now. Let's talk about fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, do you want to give us some fingerprints? I got a fingerprint for you. Okay. Okay. If you're looking at otherwise healthy, community-dwelling people, the combination of wheezing with any of any of these other symptoms, dyspnea, nocturnal dyspnea, exertional dyspnea, nocturnal chest tightness, all have a likelihood ratio of greater than 10 for asthma. And that's just because asthma is really common. So if you have someone out there who's healthy and comes in saying, I'm wheezing and I have something else with it, it's almost certainly asthma. But let's emphasize that you said otherwise healthy. Right. So this isn't your patient with heart failure who's coming in with you know, wheezing. This is a normal, uh, healthy person. Absolutely. All right, I have one. So you ready for this likelihood ratio? I'm going to beat yours. Okay. In a patient who's short of breath, the combination of a greater than 55 pack year history, which is, as everyone knows, multiplying the number of packs per day times the number of years you've been smoking, that with wheezing on auscultation and a patient reported wheezing has a likelihood ratio for COPD of bum, 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 156. Wow. That's crazy. Um, That's crazy. So I guess that just tells you that, you know, someone with a long smoking history who's coming in with basically symptoms of obstructive airway disease, that person's got COPD. I guess that's not really rocket science. Yeah. We got to come up with something there. All right. So common misconceptions. Um, So I think mine is that angioedema only occurs right when you start ACE inhibitors, right? Not true. It's annoying, it's aggravating, but, you know, someone can be on lisinopril for five years and then calls you and say, hey, I woke up and, you know, half my lip is swollen or I can't breathe. And that could be angioedema. Okay, so we will remember that. And mine, we've already beat to death. All that wheezes is not asthma. Right. So our favorite, let's go on to pet peeves. Okay, pet peeves. I got a controversial one. Are you ready? Okay. Um, And this is controversial because my pet peeve is what's recommended in most guidelines. Um, So my pet peeve is that you don't need formal PFTs to diagnose asthma. Okay. Now, I think and, and just about every guideline you read says that if you're thinking a person has asthma, you should get formal PFTs. And I think in my, you know, self-righteous, self-important generalist, you know, way, I think that's because those guidelines are mostly written by subspecialists, and those subspecialists are mostly seeing the sicker people with asthma, the more complicated people with asthma, the people with asthma and other diseases. You know, in primary care, you see a lot of people who are, you know, 17 and they come in and they say they wheeze every now and then. They wheeze when they visit their girlfriend who has a cat. You know, they wheeze only when they exercise. You know, that person's got asthma, right? And people are smart. They've usually used a beta agonist inhaler before they see you. And they usually say, and when I use albuterol, it helps. 
you know, what more do you need to know? And so I feel like everybody with asthma doesn't need PFDs. So I think we'll put Kevlar on you for when you see the pulmonary folks around here, because I can tell you they yes. exactly say that. They also see all the people who are misdiagnosed. Absolutely. Right. So Absolutely. I agree with you. I would say the same thing, but have a low threshold when things aren't adding up. If the person has a lot of dyspnea, right. anything that doesn't add up, like right. this patient, of course, but then you really should do it. Right. And I think also that if like, listen, if that person who came in and I said, this person has asthma, there's no question about it. And I put that person, you know, on a low dose inhaled corticosteroid because they told me they were, they were using albuterol three times a week. And then I see them a few months later and they're like, nothing's changed. You know, I'm going to step back and reassess. All right, good. Um, so my pet peeve, I'm going to get, you're going to get in trouble from the pulmonologist and I'm going to get in trouble from the radiologist. So my pet peeve is a chest x-ray does not make the diagnosis of COPD or asthma. I unfortunately occasionally will see a report where the chest x-ray report says, you know, hyperinflated lungs diagnostic of COPD or asthma. That's just not true. Those are airflow definitions, or sorry, let me say that clearer. Those diagnoses should only be made with the entire clinical context taken together. And it's not, you know, hyperinflated lungs in and of themselves do not make the diagnosis of either COPD or asthma. Absolutely perfect. And, and I think maybe where I would extend that, so absolutely true with COPD, right? You see a ton of people who are just thin, tall people and who did a really good job of taking a big breath when they did the chest x-ray right. who look like they have COPD, but they don't have COPD. Um, and obviously there are other things on the chest x-ray, right? Besides just big lungs. So flattened diaphragms, a big retrosternal airspace, things like that, that'll that'll add more specificity to the chest x-ray. But boy, I'm with you. That's overcalled so often. Um, and the other thing is for asthma, right? I mean, really, x-rays seldom have a role in making the diagnosis right. of asthma. And even in an asthma exacerbation, you know, when you're getting a chest x-ray, you're doing it to make sure there's nothing else going on. You're, it has nothing to do with your diagnosis of asthma or an asthma exacerbation or how severe the exacerbation is or anything. Right. So like to take it one step further, your patient, not your patient, the patient you just talked about, the 17-year-old with an occasional wheezing, takes the albuterol, it's better. I'm not getting a chest x-ray on that person. On the other hand, a patient with new wheezing, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. A chest x-ray is part of at least the initial evaluation, not every time they're sick. Good. Great point. Great. All right. Clinical pearls. Okay. I got some clinical pearls. All right. Go for it. Okay. This one I mentioned before. Um, when a patient with asthma whose symptoms are poorly controlled often what we would call refractory asthma, keep a wide differential, okay? It may very well um, be just severe asthma, but could be a whole lot of other things. So problem with adherence to a prescribed regimen. That means the person doesn't know how to use their inhalers. It might be that the person doesn't understand how to use their inhalers. It might be that they can't afford their inhalers and so they're not using them at all. There could be unrecognized or untreated precipitants. We talked a little bit about this. Talk, think about GERD, think about sinusitis, think about indoor pollution, think about their aunt who comes over and smokes in the house. Um, you could have the incorrect diagnosis, right? It might not be asthma. And there might be other things that are causing kind of chronic intermittent airway obstruction. Could be COPD, could be sarcoid, could be paradoxical vocal cord movements, one of my favorite diagnoses in the world. And then... If all those aren't the case, there could be rare diseases. And these are getting into the things that you just don't see a lot. But, you know, if you want to be a good doctor, it's not just doing a good job 
diagnosing the common things. It's keeping your spidey sense out for the rare bad things. And so that could be granulomatosis with polyangiitis, the thing we used to call Churg-Strauss or ABPA, which we talked about. Spidey sense. I love that expression. Spidey sense. Spidey sense. That's quite good. Thank you. Okay. So my clinical pearls we've mentioned before, but just to emphasize them, I would say, you know, heart failure can cause wheezing. We've talked about that. And the other one that we've already emphasized, I'm just going to put together is strider is usually an emergency. And I've even seen patients who look comfortable with strider when it's new and won't let them out of my sight. It's you have to stay with me until the anesthesiologist or the um, ENT person comes and looks at your airway and tells me that you're not going to die. Great point. And then I'll also, I think, probably just underline some things. Um, It's worth emphasizing again that in severe COPD or asthma, you might not hear wheezing um, and people may still be in in significant distress. And in fact, if you have someone, you know, with asthma who is wheezing and then they stop wheezing, maybe it's that they got better. Maybe it's that they've basically stopped breathing on you, right? And so listen to the person, do peak flows, you know, get a blood gas if you're concerned and, you know, look at them, those people who are, you know, sitting up, leaning forward, pursed lips, right? Those are all clues that that the person might be doing poorly. I was just going to say that the posture of the patient is really important when someone's dyspneic, right. because if they're laying flat, it's probably not bad. Right. But if they're leaning forward and they look uncomfortable and you don't hear anything, that would actually be panicking, right? right? I'm, well, it make me panic. It might raise your heart rate. Right. Isn't there the tripod sign? Like, I guess so, forward right. on two arms, and I guess the third tripod is just the torso? I guess. I'm not a camera person. Okay. You look like you have something else to say about position. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me that one of those things that we gather intuitively when we see a patient, when you've been at this for a while, is whether they look sick or not. And one of the clues to that is actually what position that they're in. So when it comes to dyspnea, what you actually find is it's very rare for somebody with severe dyspnea to be laying down. They're almost always sitting up and sometimes they're even leaning forward, which can be a sign that they're in a lot of respiratory distress. It turns out that's true for COPD and asthma, but it's also true for epiglottitis, where an erect posture is almost as specific as Strider is. It's 90%. So it's kind of surprising. That is. I wonder what the combination between Strider and erect posture is. I think it's pretty high. That should probably freak you out. Yes. And then one other thing to throw out there, um, you know, COPD, it takes a while to get COPD, right? You got to smoke a lot for long enough to damage your lungs. So if you're seeing someone who's young, who you're thinking about COPD, you should probably pause. And, uh, you know, people can get early COPD with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but it's probably just another diagnosis. Yep. I have one more thing to say about COPD. This is a little bit off the subject, but I kind of thought we'd get to it, but I'll throw it in. And it relates to two things we've talked about, COPD and heart failure. COPD often makes the chest X-ray harder to see heart failure on, right? And it's probably because there's been so much lung destruction that there's just not as much place to put fluid. And so instead of seeing, you know, the classic, I don't know, you know, bat wing, upper zone redistribution, all that stuff that we see with heart failure, you still see dark lungs and so you might miss heart failure. You know, I think that's a really good point. We're not focusing very much on therapy, but it is true that it is hard to diagnose, especially heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, where the echo looks 
fairly unremarkable. And so I've taken, I'm curious if you do this, with some of those patients, if I suspect there might be an element to heart failure, and I'm not sure, I actually just try them on diuretics and push them dry to see if that helps their oxygenation. Right. It's also probably a place where a uh, BNP, a brain natriuretic peptide these days helps, right? Yeah, right. Um, And that's sort of where it was initially shown to be useful, right? That if your BNP was at all, what? We should really turn it around. If your BNP was normal, you know, below 50, it is right. not heart failure. Right, exactly. Um, I was going to say something else. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe we should go back to our dementia podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I think it's also worth stating that because these diagnoses are hard to make, often when we have people in the emergency room, we sort of throw everything at them, Right person comes in wheezing, they have known COPD, maybe they have known heart failure, risk factors for heart failure. You know, a lot of those people get NEBs, get steroids, get diuretics, and you're just like, we got to get this person to breathe, and then we'll figure out the subtleties in the days later. For sure. Okay, so we hope you found this episode of the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis and Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. Thank you.